0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome
1: everyone.
0: So we're moving on and starting a new topic of study and discussion looking at Chapter 20 in Jack Hornfield's book, The Wise Heart, and here he titles the chapter, Concentration and the Mystical Dimensions of the Mind. And, you know, I'm guessing part of the reason it's near the end of the book is this brings up a lot for us. You know, on the one hand, we've all heard stories about uh, people's concentration experiences, And uh, it's very appealing, you know, when you read about expanded states of consciousness or beautiful states of mind, deep states of tranquility, peacefulness. And we get attracted and we start to desire those states. And the desiring, the craving for beautiful states of mind, I'm sure it doesn't you don't need me to tell you, this isn't the cause for developing beautiful states of mind. You can have a lot of desire to have a healthy relationship with your partner, but what actually supports a healthy relationship with your partner isn't craving a healthy relationship. It's doing the work that leads to the healthy relationship. And it's the same thing with developing beautiful, deeper states or beautiful states of consciousness. Like everything else in the universe, the quality of the mind or the state of the mind, it arises due to certain causes and conditions. So part of what we learn in meditation practice and just more generally through our days as we emphasize being present or mindful is we we learn how it is that this particular mind has come to be, you know, the particular mood or attitude or the qualities of the mind, they're arising due to particular causes and conditions. So when the mind is really distracted or fragmented or upset or superficial, that superficiality isn't a mistake, it's just the natural fruit of whatever is supporting it, whatever came before. And when our mind is more settled, more clear, more happy, broader, deeper, more expansive, these wholesome qualities of mind arise due to causes and conditions. So by paying attention in a more systematic way to the mind, to the heart, we understand the natural movement toward expanded, beautiful states of consciousness and narrow tight unwholesome states of consciousness. So we don't feel so much a victim or helpless about how the mind is, but we know how to participate. So that when we hear about somebody, you know, often, when we bump up against somebody who has what we want, like their mind seems to be in a really good place and our mind isn't, we tend to get jealous or envious. But, I mean, if we really knew... What we were doing we wouldn't do that because that's exactly the opposite thing we should do if we're attracted to that beautiful state of consciousness we see in somebody else the right thing to do would be to say to the person tell me exactly how it is that that beautiful state of mind arose for you you know and then we'd listen we'd ask questions until we got it and then we do what they did to get that same state of mind. You know, and it's the same thing with unwholesome states, narrow states, contracted states of mind. If we really see how the mind gets caught in fear, how the mind gets caught in anger or resentment, how the mind gets caught in fear and neediness and loneliness and all the different contracted, narrow, heavy states, we'd learn not uh, what not to do it's almost like we put up little danger signs like we see on highways, you know, be careful. Don't go here. Dangerous road. Drive carefully. Pay attention to what you're doing so as not to go off into that rut and get caught there. In Buddhism, as well as many other spiritual traditions, you know, people have done their best, you know, in an imperfect way, it's not easy, but throughout history, people have done their best to map out the beautiful expanded states of mind, to create maps or roadmaps that help us understand how it is that we can experience directly expanded states. In this chapter, Jack Cornfield mentions that uh, you know, to various studies, psychological studies, you know, they've discovered, um, psychology researchers have discovered that most people have experienced mystical states or altered states of consciousness or expanded states of consciousness. And then the other finding is that most people don't want to go back. So it's interesting that we like the idea of expanded states, we sort of romanticize it, you know, even the image of the Buddha or the idea of, sort of the saints that have these psychic abilities or these beautiful expanded states of compassion or loving kindness, peace and stillness. As so, uh, Ajahnar Samadho, one of the people I see as one of my important teachers, has this very funny line where he says, Most people like the idea of peace, but most people find the actual experience of peace boring. You know, so we like the idea of calm and tranquility, or we like the idea of stillness and peace. But it's not, you know, part of the problem of developing these more beautiful expanded states of consciousness is we're quite dependent, addicted really, to the intensity of greed and aversion in the mind. We like drama. I mean, just think about what we do all day long to you know, keep going back to content that elicits the feeling of craving or elicits the feeling of aversion or fear. So we have a lot of conditioning that we have to understand and not be confused by, not be fooled by, in order to go beyond our ordinary states of consciousness that keep us orbiting around the same qualities all the time. You know, we tend to dwell over, I mean, the content may be different, but the actual texture of the mind or shape of the mind, the narrowness of the mind, doesn't shift too much unless there's a dramatic event in our lives, the loss of a loved one, or, you know, we fast. or We do something pretty uh, intense that shifts the state of mind, causes a change in the consciousness. Or we develop a systematic meditation practice or an ongoing meditation practice where we're learning, you know, in Buddhism, we don't use, hallucinogens, we don't use drumming and uh, chanting to some degree, you know, but if you look through human culture, there are all these different supports for transforming the mind or creating, supporting altered states of consciousness, whether it's drugs or chemicals or rhythm, percussion, chanting, other ritual activities, but in Buddhism primarily what's used is a uh, the development of an understanding of the mind, really the art of the mind itself, art of working and understanding how the mind works. And what allows for the expanded state of consciousness, it's not so much that we're putting together an expanded state or sending the mind to an expanded state. We're abandoning the restrictions or the limitations of the mind. So when I'm thinking about me and why this happened to me today or what I'd like to happen to me tomorrow, those thoughts about me who want something to happen to me tomorrow, those concepts of me and tomorrow and this and that, they're very limiting. They limit the mind. They actually shape the mind or construct the mind in a limited, narrow constricted way. So to experience an expanded state of consciousness isn't so much about me creating something, as much as it is about understanding how to abandon, to put down the limitations. What's limiting the mind? What is limiting the mind? All of our conceptions of self and other, of this and that, past and future, these conceptions limit the mind. And within these limitations, sort of the glue of these limited states or these constricted states. The glue is really greed and aversion. You know, it's it's the intensity of wanting, the intensity of fearing, the intensity of aversion that holds the conceptions together, whatever it might be. Like if I'm fearful about what might happen tomorrow or if I'm excited with greed about what might happen tomorrow, it's the greediness and the ideas about tomorrow and the ideas about me having tomorrow, all of that, you know, I use to construct a limited state of mind right now. And, you know, once one limited state of mind begins to fall apart, we just construct another one, and we construct another one. And even here at Common Ground, when we're meditating, we can construct very limited states of mind by thinking about how bad of a meditator we are. So then we have the conception of me, and we have a conception of Buddhist meditation practice, and this idea of me not being good at Buddhist meditation practice. And all of these conceptions are tight and limiting. You know, and to live inside that space, inside of that psychic space, is heavy and unpleasant. Which, what does that make us do? It makes us want even more to be good at it, and feel have even more doubt about not being good at it, right? So you see how it's circular it's hard to break out of the limitations because we want to use limited thoughts to free ourselves from limited thoughts, constricted thoughts to free ourselves from constricted thoughts. But that doesn't work. What works is, is just to allow the constrictions, the limitations to fall away. Because no matter how constricted our mind is right now, that constriction, the limitations that have arisen now in my mind, they're going to fall away anyway very quickly. So as long as I'm not recreating the limitations, rethinking, in a sense, the constricted thought, the mind will begin to expand, will begin to open up, go beyond its ordinary state. And this is a really important point about developing concentration or expanded beautiful states of mind. It will happen naturally if we simply learn how to stop limiting the mind. And we limit the mind by getting identified with constricted conception, constricted ideas, limited ideas of self, of the experience of the moment, of the world. It's the mind holding or identifying with limited, constricted ideas of what's happening, who I am, what this is. That's what prevents the mind from opening to more beautiful, expanded, calm, peaceful, wise and loving space. Jack so, Cornfield in this chapter tells a story of his wife and a discussion he had with her. I guess she's a psychologist or a therapist and she was saying to Jack, you know, instead of the DSM, some of you know this, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, I believe the uh, acronym stands for used by therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists to diagnose mental illness and psychological problems. He said instead of that, we should have you know the alternative, the DMHP, the Diagnostic Manual of Human Potential, right? A counterpart, a counterpoint to the 35 forms of depressive and bipolar Disorders, there should be 35 positive forms of emotional and mental happiness. States of contentment, joy, rapture, gratitude, and extreme well-being. In place of aggression and paranoia would be highly developed capacities of trust, love, generosity, and selflessness. In place of hallucinations and psychosis would be the many forms of benevolent visions and sounds. These inner awakenings would be cataloged from the still, small voice of the divine to angelic uh, choirs, from inspiring visions of gods and bodhisattvas, to access to to creative imagination and illuminated inner realms of understanding and light. In place of sleep disorders and amnesia, there would be extensive descriptions of wakefulness and lucid dreaming, Instead of anxiety anxiety disorders, there would be multiple categories of fearlessness, equanimity, dignity, and inner strength. Our psychologies don't speak of, of, of these possibilities, and we don't have an understanding how they can be developed. One of the telling things in Western psychology and just generally in our culture, you know, we share... Uh, these values. In Buddhism, the Buddha mapped out the wholesome qualities. They're called the factors of awakening, the mental factors of awakening. And he mapped them out. And in the West, you know, we have similar values, because three of the factors are uh, investigation, effort, and joy, joyful interest, kind of a joyful investigation sometimes translated as rapture. Now, we're really into this in the West. You know, we value investigation, we value energy, and we value joy, that joyful, you know, that exuberance, that wholeheartedness. These are also, you know, Western values. But in this particular map from the Buddhist tradition that the Buddha used, there are the three energizing that I mentioned, but they're also balanced with the three tranquillizing factors. You know, so the value of tranquility and stillness or concentration and equanimity. Now, we don't talk about this as much in Western psychology. So the way that we develop the mind, that we expand the mind, is through the tranquility, the stillness, and the equanimity. And you see, these are all about abandoning worldly limitations. When we're developing tranquility, it's the willingness of the heart to draw up its identification with what's agitating. You know, it's as if there's a very deep, wise voice saying, Not now, honey. I don't need to think this now. I don't need to plan this now. I don't need to worry about this now. I don't need to wonder about this now. I don't need to fantasize about this now. I don't need to do now. That's tranquility. Tranquility is the wisdom that understands that this doesn't need to be done. This mental activity doesn't need to be done now. It doesn't need to be picked up. We don't need to identify with the impulse to think, to plan, to worry, to judge, to compare, to wonder, to fantasize. Instead, that impulse can be there. Of course, it will be there because it is the habit of the mind, but we don't have to pick it up get identified, act it out. It's just there and then leaves, like everything It comes and goes if we don't pick it up. And then the more we practice tranquility, which is not picking up, not acting out the intentions, the impulses in the mind, then we start to feel tranquil. It's the tranquility of non-doing. And then stillness arises from that, sort of the background, empty space of the mind. That's how I like to talk about it. I mean, it's a concept, but it might point, these words might point to an experience you know from your own experience, your own either sitting or just daily life experience, where when the mind is relatively tranquil, isn't doing a lot, then it's like the mind can begin to intuit a silence or an empty space or an empty, open peacefulness Of the mind itself. So much of the time our mind is drawn into ideas of things and experiences, but now because we're letting go of that, the mind then in a sense intuits itself, intuits the space of the mind, and learns to rest in that stillness or that silence or that empty space. So instead of the doing, It's abiding in the space or the silence or the stillness. This is what we mean by concentration or one of the ways to talk about concentration. And then out of that stillness arises a sense of equanimity because in that stillness of non-doing, not creating concepts or getting identified with concepts, in that stillness, the mind feels very content. See, normally I'm into thinking and worrying and planning and judging and comparing because I feel discontent and I think that thinking will lead to contentment. Like if I just figure it out, like if I figure out what to do with my life, who to be with in my life, what kind of job to have, what to get rid of in my life, how to fix my life, then I'll be content. But when we practice non-doing, tranquility, and begin to realize some stillness, some peace, some silence and the contentment, then the mind doesn't need to do anything to be content. It's already feeling content. So then it's equanimous about all the things in the world that it might do or that it sees or that it hears because I'm not relating to the world in terms of making me content, finding contentment, because I'm already feeling content. You see how that leads to equanimity. So I have a different relationship with all the objects of my experience now. When we're an ordinary human being, all the objects I come into contact with, what I see, what I think about, what I hear, I always categorize it in terms of how can it support what I want in order to be happy, my contentment, or what might be in the way of my happiness, my contentment. But when I'm already feeling an inner contentment, then I don't need the world to be supporting my contentment, my happiness. So I can have a neutral, loving, but neutral relationship to the world. Now my relationship to the world can be all about love and generosity, because I don't need anything from it. I'm already feeling full and content and happy. So you see, that then it's easy, relatively easy to be a saint, until that changes, you know, because we're not needy. It's so easy to be loving when we're not needy, and it's so hard to be loving and kind when we're needy. Have you seen this in your life? So the question is, well, how do you do this? And this is why there's such an emphasis in spiritual traditions about developing these expanded, beautiful states. And they really need to work together. We need the investigation, we need the energy, we need the joy. But we need the tranquility and the stillness and the equanimity to develop it. I encourage, you know, as we look at concentration and the effects of concentration or the fruits of concentration over the next couple of weeks, I encourage you to have a real sense of humility about it and to approach the practice, to really listen to the instructions and just do what the instructions say to do and then see what happens. Because, as I mentioned before, the basic problem in people's meditation practice, they may aspire to contentment and tranquility and peacefulness and spaciousness and depth of perspective or breadth of perspective, open-mindedness. But the means that people tend to use is they want to use aversion or they want to use greed to get them to those beautiful states. But in this work, you know, the ends have to be in alignment with the means. So if we want an expanded, loving, peaceful state, then the means, the actual work of the practice has to have that flavor. We can't force the development of concentration. Now, in a way, there's two kinds of concentration. In Buddhism, we would refer to this as sama samadhi, right concentration or right unification of mind. That's what sama means, appropriate concentration. Because, you know, we, in just ordinary life, we have concentration, but it's usually arising out of fear. We're really afraid, so we get concentrated in order to avoid the danger, or really like something, so we really get focused. Burglars are probably concentrated if they're successful. So this isn't the concentration we're interested in. We're interested in a concentration or a unification of mind that isn't being motivated by greed or aversion. So what is it motivated by? Well, one of the ways I like to think about, you know, the proximate cause... For concentration, right concentration, concentration not motivated by greed or aversion, is the continuity of mindful awareness. When there's an unbroken, yet moment-to-moment, simple, clear, loving presence, concentration develops. Now, how do we get that continuity of mindful presence? Well, greed and aversion doesn't support the continuity of mindful Awareness, it disturbs mindfulness. Greed, when we're identified with greediness or identified with aversion, we're not mindful. We're going in the opposite direction. We're getting caught in a constricted state of mind. So to support the ongoingness of mindfulness, it's really a letting go. We're letting go of greediness. We're letting go of aversion. But we don't let go of a greediness or aversion with greed or aversion. We let go by seeing it. So what really supports the continuity of mindfulness is the wisdom of not being confused by what's happening. Because in any moment of our life, states of mind are arising and passing, right? There's just a lot of flow in our mind, in terms of body sensations, in terms of auditory experience. Everything is moving. And in particular, as the mind moves, we need that wisdom that's not confused by whatever is being known and whatever reactions, emotional reactions might be triggered by what's being known, by what's being experienced. We, somebody walks in the room that we had a really challenging interaction with a couple of days ago. We're seeing that person. We need to be mindful that we're seeing that person. And we need to be mindful that there's this emotion arising due to seeing that person. And we need to have enough wisdom so that it's not confused by what's being seen and not confused by the emotion that's arising in conjunction to what's, with what's being seen. Oh, it's just emotion. It's just seeing. So what wisdom does is it understands that seeing is just seeing, Feeling the emotion is just feeling an emotion. It's not making it personal. It's not pushing it away, like, oh, no, I don't want to feel that emotion because I'll get caught and I'll lose my concentration. Because that's also a tight movement in the mind, isn't it? To be afraid of emotion is tightness. It's already a contracted state. So we're going in the opposite direction of an expanded state. So how can we which we're inevitably going to do, whether we're sitting or we're out in the world, challenging experiences are going to arise. It might be pain in the knee. It might be a provocative memory, an exciting thought about the future. But things are going to happen when we're sitting. If mindfulness knows that this experience is arising and there's enough wisdom not to be confused by whatever it is that's arising, then whatever that is that's arising is just going to arise and cease. It won't last long. It lasts long when the mind gets identified with it. If ever there's a disturbance in your meditation that's lasting, it's only lasting because the mind is identified. It's gotten attached. It's taken the experience personally. It's either trying to hold on to it, or it's trying to make it go away. Both movements of trying to hold on, which is greed, of course, or push it away, make it go away, which is aversion, is a limited, contracted state of mind and you're going, the mind then is going in the opposite direction of samadhi, of the expanded state. But when the mind has a pain in the body that arises, or a painful or disturbing mind state or memory or something that arises, but it's, there's wisdom present, and the wisdom knows it's just what it is, it doesn't get identified, doesn't get attached, then that experience will very soon pass away. And the process of letting go will be strengthened. The mind will basically understand more deeply how skillful it is not to be attached, how skillful it is to keep letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. And out of that letting go, as I described, tranquility arises, a sense of ease of the body and mind. And out of that ease of the body and mind, the mind intuits the empty, silent peace or space of the mind and learns to rest there in the stillness. And in that stillness arises a profound equanimity, a non-attachment with what comes and goes, which stabilizes the expanded state of concentration. And from there, the mind can open to all kinds of beautiful states of love, of understanding. Really, the sky's the limit when the mind is free from the worldliness of greed and aversion. And there's a lot of healing that happens in those expanded states of concentration or expanded states of samadhi. It's sometimes better to use the word samadhi because, like I mentioned, concentration is used in a very generic sense. You know, like we can get really concentrated, like Olympic athletes get really concentrated, but they really want to win the gold. So it's really motive. the concentration is often motivated by greed or fear of failure. So we can just we can use another word, samadhi, or unification of mind, that wholesome unification of mind that arises when the mind lets go of anything that's constricting, anything that's limiting. I'll just mention one more point and then open it up for discussion. And we'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead, but one of the things you'll we'll notice when you you know, you're sitting, you create some stability in the posture. You have a sense of how you're going to use, for example, the breath or body sensations or hearing as a support for this continuity of mindfulness. It's just a place to come basically we're organizing one's attention, one's awareness with the ordinary process of breathing or the ordinary sensations of sitting, or the ordinary experience of hearing, right? We're using it as a tether, a place to keep redirecting the attention. And then with that awareness of the breath, we're just on the lookout for any impulse to get attached and letting go, not being confused by that impulse. So then we're moving into the flow of the breath as nature. We're not constructing any idea about the breath, but just the natural movement of the breath, because the mind is letting go over and over again of any conception that arises, any idea about the breath, and that starts to be experienced as tranquility. And the more we do this in a, in a funny way, the mind feels challenged by the letting go, by the mind not taking up attachment, not taking up identification. You might have like, experienced this if you have kids, or if you've been a school teacher, and you want to stop a behavior, or even if you have a pet and you want to stop a behavior that's noxious or inappropriate. And so you, you know, you create incentives for the person to do the right thing and disincentives for the person to do the wrong thing, right? Punishment, rewards, and punishment—common world of parenting and teaching. And you can even do this for yourself. And, um, but, you know, like if you say to yourself, okay, you know, you, you know if you change your diet, Mark, and uh, eat these healthy foods, then at the end of the week, I'll treat, your, you know, I'll treat me. <laughs> and I'll do the something. thing. And, you know, you create all these sort of criteria. This is what you're allowed. This is what you're not allowed. Or do you notice a lot of times we react. It's like we don't like being caged in buy those you know can't do that and our desire to eat what we shouldn't be eating that might actually increase the same with if you're trying to control somebody else's behavior they'll resist you know the boundaries that you put up so even if we're really skillful about how we approach meditation practice we shouldn't be surprised by the mind's resistance just see it as a cat or an animal not wanting to be tamed. A mind not wanting to be tamed. A three-year-old not wanting to be tamed. Or a six-year-old, or I mean, I'm sorry, a sixth-grader. I used to teach sixth grade. They don't want to be tamed, the sixth-graders. Yeah. They're discovering the joy of challenging adults. And they begin to, you know, orient much more around you know, their own peers than about the authority of the adult. And so, just to know that that's how it is. And what really supports it, now the reward and punishment, it isn't vindictive at all. We don't need to impose rewards and punishment. Nature imposes rewards and punishment. This is the great thing. We let nature do the teaching. Our job is just to make sure we see what nature is doing. So when we let the mind go into contracted state and obsessed with fear or obsessed with aversion or obsessed with greed, we just notice how contracting that is, how heavy, how into a knot the mind becomes. And when we're not getting in, indulging in those contracted states, we notice how pleasant tranquillity is. How beautiful concentration is, the bliss of concentration. How empowering equanimity is. We just notice. We feel the attraction and appreciate the reward. We feel the punishment of whenever we let the mind indulge in negative states. We don't have to judge ourselves, and we don't need to punish ourselves. It's all self-correcting as long as there's wise awareness involved. The mind will correct itself. The problem isn't that nature doesn't teach. The problem is we haven't been paying close enough attention to nature. We're so distracted by life, by our greed and aversion, that we're not learning how unproductive and painful greed and aversion is. So we just haven't been sensitive enough to learn how skillful it is to abandon the identification with greed and aversion the mind's impulse to be greedy and aversive, it's not going to go away very quick. It has so much momentum in the conditioned mind. So we have to be really patient with it. But what we can do is not forget, not forget the opportunity to see that it doesn't work and to see that when we don't pick it up, it really works. Abandoning the identification, the attachment to greed and aversion, really leads to tranquility, the happiness, the bliss of concentration, and the peacefulness of equanimity. So, like I mentioned, we'll pick this up for at least two more weeks, but I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people. I'm sure you've learned some things in your life already just from your own work and meditation practice for what comes to mind. Yeah, Ellen. Nice and loud, Ellen. It's not my intention to challenge at all anything what you're
1: saying, but um, trying to apply of going into uncomfortable emotions like all those yucky yucky emotions that you just want to not go there. Um, you almost kind of almost immerse yourself in it because it is, as I know, physical pain, the way through physical pain is through, through the pain to get to the other side.
0: Right. And that I feel like I need to hear like a bridge, you know, like I need to hear the Yeah, Yes, let me just repeat some of what Ellen said. She, she was saying that uh, that she, her understanding, her experience is that sometimes you need to go into the pain. And I think that's absolutely right. To be averse to aversion doesn't work. So. The letting go of the identification is in seeing the aversion for what it is. You have to see that identifying with aversion is suffering. And you can't see that without being open to the aversion. If we're afraid of aversion, if we're afraid of greed, we don't really understand it. So it's neither about being afraid of the negative state, nor is it about indulging or being identified. Neither one of those works. We have to understand. It's really wisdom that allows us to let go. What is wisdom? Wisdom means exactly what you said, that we understand it for what it is, and then letting go happen. The ability to not be identified happens because the mind understands. But I think one thing I'd just be careful about, this idea of a immersing the mind in the difficult state, sometimes we think we're doing the right thing. But if we're immersing the mind in the negative state, but we're identified with it, then that's not going to help. We're just going to be uh, thrown around, basically, by the negative state. So if there's not enough wisdom to see the negative state for what it is, it's best to redirect the mind in some way or to support the stability of awareness, uh, the strength of wisdom, so that we're not confused by the unwholesome state, the greed and the aversion. Because a lot of times I I notice this in my own practice, I've heard about it in other people's practice, you know, because they've been taught, we've been taught to open to the difficult states that arise in life. it's always the true instruction is to open with wisdom to the difficult states that arise. If we don't have wisdom, we can't really open to difficult states. We're just going to be sucked in. And and uh, and we end up reinforcing the negative states. So sometimes it's better to protect the mind, like by doing loving-kindness practice, for example, or redirecting the mind someplace else that's skillful, because we understand that, if I pay attention to this pain right now, I'm going to start getting sucked in. I'm going to be seduced by the story that it's this person's fault or that I'm bad, and we're going to start taking it personally, and we're just going to think about it and reinforce self-identification with the whole painful process. Yeah, So your name. I'm me, how is that related to something like Greece? Greece? I mean, is Greece or, you know, one of those you know, Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the way it relates is, you know, if you've had a a profound loss in your life, good friend or a parent or something, you know, you might bring that person to mind or that person might come to mind, and as you're remembering that person, there may be this feeling, what we call grief, this movement of emotion. Now, once there's the movement of emotion, we don't really need the idea of the person. It's like giving freedom for the movement of emotion to happen. So this is what we mean by not being identified with the grief, but not being afraid of it either. Fear of it would be somehow in sort of a sense of the pain of that emotion of grief that we run from it. We stay distracted. We just don't let the mind open to it. That would be avoidance. And indulging would be that the mind, in a sense, is tripping on the intensity of the pain of the grief. And it it likes the drama. Even though it's really painful, the sadness is painful, that it's somehow identified with being the aggrieved person or being the sad person. And it revisits it because there's a strong sense of self there. And so the more healthy way it's just to be aware of those two extremes and not fall into indulging in the grief and not fall into avoiding the grief, but just allowing the natural movement of grief. And I'll just give you an example how it's worked for me when I've lost close people in my life uh, when they've died. Is I, it's just interesting. Like I'll be going about my day. I remember this has happened many times over the years with different people, and all of a sudden a strong emotion will arise and I might sob for a while but I'm not picking up any content with the movement of emotion and it can like come on really suddenly and be very strong and then go away very quickly but see my mind isn't uh, identified with the idea that oh I'm really sad because if I about this person not being in my life anymore because if I create a story then it won't make sense for the grief to go away quickly. It's like, that doesn't make sense. Like, I'm happy, and now I'm really sad, and now it's okay. That doesn't make sense from a, the point of view of a story. But actually, that's how it is. Grief just finds its opportunity, and it will move. And for, sometimes, and for some people, and sometimes it will be for a while. Other people will be short. But we don't need to control it. We just want to get out of the way and allow the grieving process to happen and to give it space to move and not to try to make it last longer or not to try to stop it from lasting, but just to go. And then the interesting thing is grief has its own intelligence. It sort of knows when it's okay to move. And when it's so when it has you know, when the body and mind has to sort of do its thing in life. So those are just some thoughts about it. Yeah. Say your name again. Mark. Mark. Um, I, I appreciate that.
1: Sometimes I think it's intellectualized that I'm angry, but there's no physical reality to it. So I guess the, the point about um, what is appropriate to express when that, that emotion arises—certainly, um, you know, I don't want to be in a state.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, in a perfect world, like using your example of anger, when something happened and it really pushed our button and we feel betrayed, we feel angry, it would be really nice to be able to let that anger bloom completely without indulging in it, without suppressing it several times. So we're really developing the capacity, like the space of mind, to let it come and let it go, let it come, let it go, until we get to the point where we're not confused by the intensity of the emotion. Because that's what really, that's really the hook. When we experience something really intense, there's like this deep impulse in the mind that says something like, this must be personal because it's so intense but the more we see it come and go and the more we see it coming and going dependent on what the mind is thinking about or looking at the more we understand you know what anger is and what it isn't and we sort of make peace with that big movement and then it's easy once we've made peace with it not confused by the intensity of the anger then we can look at the situation. You know, now we're on the surface of our life and I have this relationship with this person and I have this motivation to take care of myself and I have these responsibilities. And so we can sort of open to the, what we call our life situation. And then we can respond more appropriately to it, like what we should say, what we shouldn't say, because we're not under the influence of the intensity of the emotion now. We've made peace with it, with wisdom. Like we understand what it is and what it isn't. Because when something's really big and intense like anger, we just assume there's intelligence there. But it isn't intelligence. It's like, uh, you know how it is, like your cat. I can be petting my cat, and then if I get a little too vigorous, you know, it's like she grabs me. You know, she can't help but have that response. You know, but... The last thing she'd want to do is harm the person who feeds her and cares for her, you know. But she just can't, that's just like an automatic reaction. And so we, we have this capacity to learn about these automatic conditioned reactions we have when we feel threatened. And that's where anger comes out of, we feel threatened. Something that feels like our ground is being threatened and we get angry, we get fearful. But we make peace with that. We sort of learn to feel that without being confused by the intensity. And then we can read the situation without the influence of that intensity and really get a sense of how important is this, what should be said, is it appropriate to let this go, you know, am I just afraid to speak up, can I speak up in a way where I can take care of myself without intentionally wanting to harm this person. Yeah, maybe time for one more. Yeah, Barbara. You're
1: saying that, um, that, that you saying the the half
0: No, I think the, the instinct is to identify with emotion. Unless we really develop the practice or just have a lot of momentum, because maybe we're on retreat, That when we're semi-conscious or not you know not really awake the tendency is to immediately identify with emotion but if it's without
1: the, truth,
0: if it's awake, the mind will probably create the content to make the emotion make sense even when you're, only from
1: office,
0: you're still not i think so like imagine if somehow while you're asleep we could insert a strong emotion of anger you don't think you're in your dream state your mind wouldn't concoct a story that made the anger make sense? And I think we do that in waking life too. That if for some I mean, one of the one of the classics in, among people who do a lot of practice is the more regular practice you have, the more that you're not only sensitive to the emotions that are getting triggered by your life situation, but Other emotions that have nothing to do with what's going on now will start to arise. Ancient grief, ancient rage, ancient loneliness or neediness. But it's nothing. You might have everything hunky-dory in your life, but you're just feeling this intense irritation. And it's like if you're not careful, the mind will concoct reasons why you're irritated, why you're lonely, why you're needy, why this person is betraying you even though it's, it's just not there. The mind constructs it because it trusts the emotion more than it trusts the experience. And this is why, you know, in response to Mark's comment, I emphasize like really making peace with the intensity of the emotion because as with an ordinary mind, a primitive mind, we trust the emotion more than we do what we're actually seeing in front of us. So if we're feeling a lot of fear, we just assume there's danger, even though we carefully looked around and there's no danger. We just believe that. I'll just end with an example. For a while, I was having a lot of this sort of generic emotion come up. I'd go on a long retreat. For a while, I was doing a three-month or a longer retreat every year. And uh, for the first couple of weeks, I just have a lot of terror. It would just be there. i just show up. I'd feel so good to be back on retreat, felt so safe. And then a day into the retreat, it'd be like pure terror, day after day for several days. But of course, I was in a really safe place. I knew people. I loved the whole container of the retreat structure. But I just had a lot of terror. And when I wasn't being mindful, I would assume that I was doing something terribly wrong being there. You know, like it was actually dangerous and I needed to get out of there. Or I couldn't trust the people or, you know, you become paranoid. But, you know, and then later I realized, no, things are fine. This is a great place to be and this is just the feeling being known. It's just terror being known. Yeah. And we have to leave it here. So take a few seconds and let go of the words and take a breath or two together. appreciating the silence the great space of the mind grateful for these teachings, these wise and practical teachings that have been handed down by women and men who've done the practice before us, shared what they learned And we can be inspired to do the same, developing wisdom and compassion in life, being a cause for happiness, peace, in our hearts and in the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers
1: and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.